Welcome to the Evolution of Capitalism podcast. My name is Mate Rigo. I'm assistant professor at Yale and U.S. College, and it is a pleasure to talk to Elizabeth Schimfossel, who is an old friend here today. Uh, she has just published uh, a book on the Russian new bourgeoisie or oligarchy titled Rich Russians from um, Oligarchs to Bourgeoisie, uh, which came out in 2018 at Oxford University Press. And Elizabeth is professor at Aston University in Birmingham, a lecturer there. And, you know, I have known Elizabeth for 10 years. I think first we met at the ACs conference in Boston, probably, you know, very long time ago. And then we have good memories of sharing beer with uh, another featured uh, guest of this podcast, Ilya Yablokov in Florence in 2017. Do you remember that? Sorry? Do you remember those? Uh... Oh, yes, okay. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so welcome, Elizabeth. You know, let's talk about your book, which really has been sort of broadly reviewed, most recently even in connection with the Austrian uh, government crisis. There was a review of it in the, or, or, or a reference to it in the, in the Süddeutsche Zeitung. But, you know, basically what I find extremely original in this book on the new Russians, these, as you write, 0.1 or 1%, top 1% of Russian society, that it's an extremely difficult group to access. And you made over 80 in-depth interviews that you quote extensively in the, in the book that serve a sort of backbone of this study with both the oligarchs, both these wealthy people and their acolytes, partners, assistants. And, you know, the book really investigates how oligarchs turn into the bourgeoisie, or in other words, how financial capital is turned into cultural capital. Why is it that Russian oligarchs are known to be the patrons of arts? Uh, why is it that education becomes important, how they relate to their own past, how they, how they relate to their Soviet past. And, you know, these are just some of the main themes of the book. Uh, you are a sociologist. Do you, would you identify or would you put this book in the bracket of sociology? Or is it more of an anthropology, history? What's, what do you feel comfortable with? It is definitely a sociological analysis. I was interested right from the start in actually a more complex question than I managed to find out about in the end, which was very much in a tradition of Pierre Bourdieu mm -hmm. uh, to find out what strategies the rich apply to pass on their status to their offspring. So this mm -hmm. is this kind of questions around social reproduction. I then, when I started interviewing people, realized that's not yet quite so much their issue. Here we need to consider, I started doing my interviews and it took ages, of course, to get them together um, in 2008. The last one for my book I conducted in 2017. Um, so now we could ask the question, it's actually becoming more and more um, a big um, issue, what this kind of first generation of massive wealth is going to do with their assets. Of course, they are getting older every day and mm -hmm. uh, also come closer to, to their own deaths. And there is the question of how they will, will they establish or try to establish business dynasties. 
will they try to pass on their assets so that um, several generations are financially fine but rather want their children to be not anywhere close to, to the levels of power and so on. Back then, back then in 2007, when I started, uh, 2008, when I started doing my interviews, it was clear that the people were searching for their own identity and for their own role in both Russian society and the world, and also to understand their own beings and where they were coming from. And what was very important at the time, just at the end of the, the 2000s oil boom, that because of all the money that was set free through the oil boom and the glamour culture that developed on it, many of uh, those on the very top and also many of the very wealthy ones were very keen to distance themselves, to dis dissociate themselves from the white, uh, often very vulgar glamour culture. And in many ways we could say that's also typically producing a process of this new money and trying to buy into cultural capital by for example, collecting fine art or by uh, getting the children into uh, the world's best schools and universities. But there's a moment, and that's quite significant, um, if we look at the age today, many of them were very much in contrast to the general stereotype in the DIA. Many of them were actually born into families that some of them even quite powerful in the stock, but the majority of them um, typical Soviet intelligentsia, that is family professors of um, medics, of engineers, um, and so on. So when they were trying to not be associated that much with all the conspicuous consumption and, and glamour culture, they were also trying to refine, to kind of resuscitate their own family backgrounds and start supporting the educational background, the good schools they went to, the culture, the culturnos they had in their family and aspects like that. Yeah, this is really interesting that you that you mentioned it now because I was thinking of the Budenbrocks by Thomas Mann and I was wondering whether Russia is ahead of the game or at the bottom of the game. So basically the, the usual story, the Budenbrockian story is that you have financial capital and then the next generation it turns into cultural capital and probably it turns into nothing. But in the case of the Soviet intelligentsia, it's first you have cultural and social capital among the intelligentsia of the 60s and 70s. And then the second generation creates the financial capital but has no culture. And then they try to you know, create a new cultural aristocracy in the case of their children. So from cultural, we go to financial and then back to cultural capital again. And they don't seem to be losing their money, which is another prediction that in three generations, right, every wealthy family loses it, its wealth, right? It's another commonplace developed on Western European elites. But yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's so many, you know, so many ways to start talking about it. But one of the, one of the things I was wondering about, you are from Austria, you are not Russian, you are a woman, you mentioned that it's an extremely patriarchal masculine culture. And this is after all the elite, in a way, the global elite. So how is it possible to get into these circles and make them speak? I didn't quite get into the circles, unfortunately. That would have been wonderful to do proper ethnography. What it rather was, was a kind of a tipping in and tipping out. I was very naive when I started it. 
people told me I will never ever get interviews. But in fact, also that has also changed a lot uh, over the years. Back in 2008, I would mostly ask people among my friends, acquaintances, so on whether they knew someone or who might know someone and so on. And it was quite curious. I expected people who worked maybe in the in the wealth management industry or finance or so on in quite um, well-paid jobs to be the, the, the easiest link to the super rich. But in fact, they were rather guarding their contacts, kind of almost calculating, mm-hmm. is it worth I get in touch with this oligarch just for this little girl Elizabeth, maybe not waste at the time, I might have more important reasons to, to contact them. Whereas other people who, one of them was a left-wing intellectual who from the, the Soviet times is so well connected and he had of course no qualms sharing uh, his contacts, he was one of a, a lot of a lot of new um, contacts. And I would turn back then, also to another example was, was an Austrian journalist who first was quite stingy in sharing any contacts and then he realized, oh Elizabeth is having some success let's start trading. It wasn't quite so straightforward, but basically clear, I give you a contact, you give me a contact. Uh-huh. And back then it was quite funny, he gave me phone numbers and I wasn't supposed to tell people where to get them from. And these phone numbers were people's personal mobile phone numbers at times. <laughs> I remember um, David Jakubashvili, he's a billionaire who's been around for a long time. First, uh, his name is most um, famously connected to Wimbledon, a fruit and dairy producer, and his I had his mobile phone number and basically gave him a cold call and back then it was kind of possible to do. People would maybe be annoyed. He was quite friendly on the phone. He wasn't that friendly when I met him first. Uh, he was a very friendly person in, in general. I just caught him on, on a bad day. But it would work in this kind of very ran- random ways. Another example there was uh, his diet, unfortunately, of uh, cancer. Um, Ilya Segalovich. Ilya Segalovich is the co-founder of Yandex, mm-hmm. uh, Russia's biggest search engine, uh, bigger in Russia than Google is. And he replied to a Facebook message of mine and he said, he'd give me the interview if I promised I wouldn't use it for media purposes but for scholarship. Okay. And he then passed me on to his wife who runs a big uh, charity and in that way I handled along and, and collected the first interviews. The second wave of interviews that I started this research I started in 2015 and back then things had developed was it possible to get uh, private mobile phone numbers and would have been absurd to give people cold calls. In contrast, however, by then uh, there was a certain professionalism among some of the of the officers. So I would write a formal offer, uh, letter to a PR person or to a personal assistant and some of them replied and organized the interview for me. So what changed among the elite in these past 10 years? What's this whole sort of increased privacy? Or is it just the world change? Or is it connected to the Great Recession? Or the you know perception of the oligarchs in Russia? Or is it just simply technological change? The recession certainly did accelerate a certain trend uh, towards not showing up that badly. But actually that had started already earlier in the mid 2004-2005, much more as a cultural response to this speaker's consumption. What has changed otherwise is, yeah, there's certainly lifestyle changes, and then there are, what is very important, also more and more attempts to, in a way, 
think in the future and legitimize oneself through, for example, being engaged in the art, supporting some social cause and things like that. So it's become more and more important to, and coming back to the, what we started the conversation of, to like the Robert Burns in the uh, late 19th century in the US who shake off the image of being a, a crook and a robber baron and, and, and turn into a gentleman, showing all these more sophisticated traits and activities. Very important in this process is also that once you have such a powerful position, it's also almost kind of mandatory, obligatory to show some responsibility. Mm-hmm. Noblesse oblige, so this kind of social status obliges to care about society in one way or the other. Yeah, what I, what I find found also interesting is this narrative of continuity and narrative of permanence in their family histories that the Russian oligarchs try to tell to themselves and, you know, also try to tell you. Namely, you know, what you're writing about is how they create their family histories. That first being interested in family history is a sign of cultural capital in itself, but how they craft these narratives is that, well, nothing changed. My parents were very talented. They were part of the Soviet elite. Now I'm part of the capitalist elite. So what? And, you know, at the same time, the most common origin, social origin of the Russian oligarchy is not the working class. It's also not, you know, some nameless technocrats, but really the sort of Soviet elite engineers, professors, writers, people who were in a way connected to the state redistribution system, who then were able to convert this capital for their children who were around 30, right? Most of them were in their 30s when the collapse of the Soviet Union and the privatization process under Yeltsin happened. So, you know, they still craft these narratives of permanence. What do you think this means? Or is it true? Or is it, you know, what, what can a sociologist, how can a sociologist interpret this? That was very interesting. It was also interesting that in, in the first interviews, there were cases where people said, got also quite into talking when I asked them about the family histories. And some of them said they've never been asked about it. Nobody is interesting. Nobody's kind of, it's not a topic that would ever discuss with anybody. And by now, of course, everybody is long on their genealogy and uh, all children know the, all the myths and the stories and the legends uh, about their grandfathers. I think it's a kind of important thing if you occupy or if you think of yourself and then play the role as someone who is of certain kind of, it's of the kind of a moral leadership, not, a, not necessarily political one or hardly in any case political one, but uh, an economic dominance in, in many cases. And then also the responsibility people think that comes from it. Then, of course, having a certain kind of history and not being just randomly on this position, but looking back into a past that supports this kind of myth of being someone of higher status who's got to play a certain role in society uh, is hugely, hugely adventurous. What also comes in, which is an odd thing, people then usually don't understand themselves as necessarily in their stories as oligarchic entrepreneurs, powerful businessmen in their own self-identity. But when it comes to the, when looking at the Roman society, quite often they see themselves as part of almost something like uh, the intelligentsia even today. There was, for example, um, 
Dennis, a young guy who I met in London. He grew up in the 90s in Russia. His father was about the 300th richest man in the world when he was little. And he complained a lot about that he doesn't understand British society because of its class system and this stratification that is so strict and very difficult to, to cross. And he said if he looks at his, himself, his outside society, and if he belongs to any social group in Russia, it would clearly be the intelligentsia, and see that was kind of an, an, an idea of intelligentsia, um, not necessarily with a very kind of uh, social obligation, but rather one or, of elitism. And he said the intelligentsia has always been this educated, westernized, progressive group, or progressive not in a, in a, in a political sense, but sure. uh, advanced, advanced group in Russian society that has never had anything to do with these big masses of dumb and illiterate peasants. And that was also his idea on his own role in society, never mind the riches in his family, and also how he saw his father's role and his grandfather's role. And then he went back into the past. His grandparents were professors and engineers, and his father was an engineer. So he basically was blending out the material side of their family history, but much more stressed what kind of education and culture there's only always been in the family and also identifies himself with exactly this social group and all the values around it. Which is interesting. I remember that this is the guy who you asked him, oh, and where do you place yourself in British society? And he says something like, oh, I'm not part of British society. I'm still sort of his reference point is still the Soviet, you know, social hierarchy. And that, you know, you also make the point that they don't really integrate uh, in London. They live there to some extent, you know, they are familiar with some of the cultural codes of, in this case, British society, but they still very much think of themselves as Russian and also as superior to the declining West, which is also a very significant and typical Soviet narrative that even though the Soviet Union might be poorer than the West, but the West is in decline. People are doing drugs, they're drinking Coke and doing Coke versus Russia is embodying some sort of higher form of morality and, and culture, which is also very similar to the attitudes of common East Europeans who have been living in the UK for 10 or 20 years, but they still remain Poles and Hungarians, and they still, in a weird way, look down on British society and its its sort of perceived decline. Do you think that's an accurate picture, or is it more complicated than that? complicated than that? Oh yeah, that's certainly certainly the case. All this identification with also, for example, a heritage in literature and, and culture and also this urge to maintain this culture and care about it, even if long living in London and not intending to go anywhere else. Of course, the arts and the arts community, they do integrate in some ways, but nevertheless very keen to preserve their own identity and and ideas about who they are and of course then also very often with a good portion of feeling of superiority which so is also interesting because we don't really see it in you know in the recent let's say crazy rich asians movie there is a strong sort of asian identity among the wealthy but there is a much more serious conformism and wanting to be like the parisian elite 
like the American elite, like the British elite. And, you know, this comes to the problem of racism, right? In a way that probably, you know, the Russian elite is, you know, has more avenues to sort of, you know, feel superior and is experiencing less uh, racism, at least in these host societies than, let's say, the crazy rich Asians crowd. Although here, you know, I'm just really speculating here. But, you know, but there is another form of racism that they are experiencing. And that's something that, you know, you can read in between the lines, I guess, in your book. And that's the problem of anti-Semitism. Do they relate? How do they relate to their Jewish heritage? Some of the oligarchs who are Jewish, of course, not all of them are. Quite positively, I would say. I don't think in British, I mean, British, the British establishment, of course, has always had a slight anti-Semitism. Yes, and that's in some cases nothing about just kind of just in the in the social pecking order. It can be sensed at times, but overall, for example, if you take Len Blavatnik, who would sue every journalist who dared to call him a Russian oligarch, wants to be called a U.S. American philanthropist of Jewish Ukrainian descent. Mm-hmm. So that's not something people hide in any way. I don't think that's a big issue. In terms of racism, as I said, in comparison to the crazy rich Russians, what is rather the case is it's not so much racism, it's rather the feeling of being repelled or not quite accepted by the establishment here. And that defiant counter-reaction to to not becoming so easily integrated to responding with the narrative of actually we are better than you Brits, so how dare you, Uh, and then also this kind of uh, almost uh, almost kind of turning their backs because of the lack of access uh, acceptance they experience, some of them. And that's also, of course, I mean, when we, if we take case of Blavatnik, he's remodeling as even so, he made his money in the 1990s in the natural resources, pretty much as a whole range of oligarchs who are still uh, dominating today. His remodeling as someone not Russian has been hugely successful. And I've heard it several times that, especially events where, where people discuss philanthropy, British people getting almost getting angry with me if I mention anything of that sort because there's so much adore Blavatnik and what he does that that they like like Blavatnik they feel it as it's an insult calling him a Russian oligarch. He is he is a philanthropist and not Russian, he's not a gangster. So they almost have to reinforce certainly this narrative of being Russian is not advantageous. At the same time, having said so, there's of course if you look for example at Ramana Abramovich, I think he's become so much a part of London that people long come to totally accept the presence of such people and of course with Chelsea also their uh, their finances they bring along but also when they're courier they they have these strange exaggerated super yachts they're a little bit socially maybe awkward but at the same time totally part of British society Um, so that that's another aspect of that after a while not being being of quite dodgy dodgy background and also having the image around it, like Abramovich certainly does in a certain way. It nevertheless uh, triggers enough curiosity to, to find acceptance. Okay. Do you think Brexit will change this the role of Londongrad for 
the wealthy of Russia. The only thing what looked so, for example, what, what made a change for Abramovich in person was that he was then used as fake leave to show some resolute response to the salt spray poisoning. Mm -hmm. And after that, there were fears of new sanctions. So if there was further tensions that could bring up sanctions again, that could be a thing that could change things a little. So sanctions, especially personal sanctions against rich Russian individuals, is something they fear completely. London has so much become a part of Russian, of the life of rich Russians, that losing that access is something they're very scared about. It's also, for example, litigation, as London is very much as a center of litigation. And from a long time, that was completely accepted by the, by the Kremlin, also something that Putin close people could easily use. And there were a lot of court cases here in London where one rich Russian fought against another rich Russians, which are totally uh, accepted. So almost a question of we don't need to develop the rule in law in Russia itself because we've got London for the purpose anyway. So if, if they get deprived of that access, that of course is something makes them very nervous. In terms of Brexit, no, that won't make a difference. I don't think so. Could you talk about um, the most memorable or one of the memorable encounters either in Russia or in England? or in America, I mean, you, some of the people let you into their dachas, for instance. Yes, yes, that was memorizable. And especially the journey back from Bondacha, where there was this oligarch whose name I'd forgotten. He was there. <laughs> it was not seen because it was clear that he was a guest and a multi-billionaire, whereas the rest were mainly just billionaires. Okay. Um, it's an important distinction, apparently, in these circles. Yes. So there was this situation that during the dinner already, he behaved quite oddly in the sense that he didn't show too much respect to the host and other people and was also getting a little drunk. And then on the um, later on, I was told that this person would give me a lift back into Moscow. And it was strange that I'd forgotten who he was because it's quite a, a famous name. And I asked him, so he asked me, so, oh, Lisa, tell me, who are you? And then I said, you also used his first name in a, in, a, in a not so formal way and asked him who he was. And he wouldn't reply to the question, but then we came to the gate of uh, this housing complex. And he took out his pass to get into the gates. And sorry, different. Uh, he, the, the, the driver showed the pass to get out, and then he asked the driver to give him the pass and to put the lights on in the back seat and showed me, basically puts put the name under the lights so I could see who he was. And that was, of course, something quite uh, hilarious in a way. I could, can't possibly imagine anybody either not telling me that uh -huh. name or making such a ceremony about making sure that I knew nevertheless. And then also this whole journey was a quite a spectacle of all social behavior. And there's been some of the cases, and I've been wondering about why that is that they just don't have this urge as would most American or British or, or European wealthy entrepreneurs to 
take it for granted that if they have, if they're in a social interaction with some young researcher like me, that they need to be leading the communication, that they need to be owning the narrative. Yeah, that they are, they so that they need to show uh, social eloquence. That and it, that's also kind of something they've learned from Cradle anyway. So it wouldn't be difficult for them in any case. And it uh, usually also kind of a uh, demonstration of superiority by by leading a conversation, being inquisitive about the person of lower social states, uh, having to get the conversation going. And I think that is one thing. How much rich Russians changed and very quickly acquired all kind of Western lifestyle habits, table manners, you name it. In terms of a certain kind of question around social interaction, they've still remained somewhat Soviet. And I think so because that's just the thing that takes the longest to sustainably take hold in a social class. You see that, for example, in Britain, in Britain, you have these very, very distinguished accents that uh, mark uh, right away for what social class someone belongs to. You don't have anything of the sort in Germany. That's, of course, a, a question of linguistic and the language as such, but also because the German elite's been shaken quite a bit through the Second World War and its aftermath. And you didn't have anything uh, of that sort in in, in Britain, where, where social class being solid uh, and stable for so long. And of course, in Russia, it's again a very different question, where you have Soviet traditions and a very different kind of habits and this kind of social, uh, social distinctions through showing generosity and friendliness towards someone lower in the, in the social hierarchy is certainly not part of it. Interesting. And that also chimes in with the poor chic and uh, sort of dressing down of, by the oligarchs, at least in the, you know, not in the 1990s, but later on in the 2000s, they want to hide their wealth and probably not being as sophisticated and being vulgar is also a way to express this, you know, I'm the man of the people type of, you know, what you probably called Soviet, if I understood it, it well. You know, just to close with, and probably we can end with a happier note, but we're in the era of the Me Too movement. Harvey Weinstein is on trial. Have you ever experienced anything uncomfortable? And if so, how does it reflect the treatment of women in <laughs> oh, these yeah, circles? Oh, yeah, I love one billionaire. So, so, so he, uh, he was, he was talking, uh, in fact, he was talking about lengths that uh, men, uh, boys and girls need to be brought up very differently because boys need to learn to lead and be breadwinners, whereas girls need to have their wings cut because otherwise they will be having trouble for in, in later life. And there is always one who is first, one who is second, that girls have to be, or women have to be second. Then he always explained to me that if a woman hasn't set up a family, so kind of, if she hasn't had children and ordered family life at the age of 30, she's not a fully fledged human being, which for me was quite ironic because I was sitting there and I think he could have been pretty aware of that I fell right into that category. He's uh, declaring as not being fully-fledged uh, human. So that was one situation where I was quite buffered. Another one was when one person got into details about his homophobic ideas and what disease it is um, to what kind of problems uh, produce, generate sick people who are um, homosexuals. 
Okay, yeah, this is uh, very disturbing and so is the sort of, you know, the quite sort of frustrating mixture of values that some of these oligarchs hold and you sort of point to three of them and that's sort of this weird fascination with genetics that verges into eugenics. For me, this sort of, they always talk about or some woman at least talks about, the wife of an oligarch talks about superior genes and many oligarchs extol their parents and they sort of inherited their wealth and their aptitude in life as a biological trait. And the other is the social conservatism, which in a way is a continuity right from Stalinist times. So Stalinist society, as you write, was fairly conservative socially. And in the Putin years, simply this social conservatism was strengthened by a cult of orthodoxy. And all these weird, you know, values come together, social conservatism, the cult of biology, genetics, and this very peculiar form of religion or would you identify any other values that regularly crop up in the interviews? Well it all comes together with the idea of being more cultured and educated. So education is an extremely important value and also when people explain themselves through superior genes as some did, that kind of contradicts the idea that they've made a special effort and they're what comes in, and quite a few of them said that it's thanks to their education that they've become who they are now, which very much makes sense in the sense of explaining your superior knowledge, sophistication and everything around on something you actually have respect for, like education. So that was an, an, another very important point in this. But it even, it, even, it even works for the young generation in terms of this being superior and better is, is translated, it kind of serves to explain why they might have seen their careers advance much more quickly than their fellow students from university, for example. So it's not one young woman who was put in the leading position at the age of 24 um, in a company that her father has great shares in. And everybody was, of course, saying, well, obviously, why she is there? She would then explain her, her success by saying, well, we've always had a culture, well, genetic, genetic talent and intelligence plus this culture in our family that just made us develop much more quickly and be much better in all kind of walks of life. So, so it's natural that she is in a leading position and it would even occur to her that it's maybe because her father put her there, but she sees it as a result of her merit. Interesting. All right, just as a way of conclusion, do you want to talk about what's next? Any new projects or whether you'll take this on? What I'm of course about, I was thinking people expected me to look at the young generation, but for some reason I kind of couldn't quite get into it. And I was thinking, no, actually what I'm more interested in is zooming into this, this aspect of now this massive social class coming up to a period where they have to think about how to really practically pass on their assets and their wealth. I think that will be quite an interesting process and I want to, especially also because we can now uh, observe it real time, I want, I don't want to miss out on it. So I'll keep, certainly keep my eyes open and I'm contemplating turning that into my next project. Being superior and better is 
um, and if the uh, is translated, it kind of is, is uh, serves to explain why they might have seen their careers advance much more quickly than um, their fellow students from university, for example. So it's not um, one young woman who was put in the uh, leading position at the age of 24 um, in a company that uh, her father has great shares in. And everybody was, of course, saying, well, obviously, why she is there? She would then explain her, her success by saying, well, we've always had a culture, well, genetic, genetic um, talent and intelligence, plus this culture in our family that just made us develop much more quickly and be much better in all kind of walks of life. So, so it's natural that she is in a leading position and it would even occur to her that it's maybe because her father put her there, uh, but she sees it as a, as a, as a result of her merit. All right. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Schimfossel, for uh, talking to me about Rich Russians, your new book, and wishing you all the best for this second project. Thank you. Thank you.